Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. It is my pleasure today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Jennifer Kramer Miller. She's a writer, a speaker, and my favorite title of a long time is Joy Seeker. Her forthcoming memoir, Incurable Optimist Living with Illness and Chronic Hope, is not only the title, but it's in the story and a description of who she is, despite everything she's gone through. As a patient advocate called a joy scouter and a four-time kidney transplant recipient, Jennifer helps others manage uncertainty, move forward with hope, and find joy. She's also thrilled to serve as the 2023 to 2026 board chair for the Minnesota National Kidney Foundation, furthering the mission of kidney health and living donation, which we'll talk about. She lives in a suburb of Minneapolis with her witty, golf-obsessed husband and her waggy, treat-obsessed Jennifer Kramer Miller, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so pleased that you're with me today. Oh, hello, Betsy. It's so great to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me, I mean, first of all, just that phrase, four-time kidney transplant recipient, those words just ever since you and I first talked a few months ago when we were preparing for this conversation, that stuck in my mind. And we've had, we had another guest, Amy Peel, who was, a, she's been a Morning Glory Project guest who worked as a nurse in the, in organ transplant and specifically kidney transplant for a very long time. And frankly, I didn't even know you could have a kidney transplant four times. So, so tell me a little bit about that and about what compelled you, you know, writing a book takes a long time. What is it that, that compelled you to write it? Well, yes, four kidney transplants is kind of a showstopper. Um, when I tell people that it's always like, there has to be a little pause for people to take that in. And, and we all acknowledge, yes, that's a lot. Um, but the reason I have had so many kidney transplants is because I do have an incurable autoimmune kidney disease, which is very stubborn. And I was diagnosed with this when I was 22. And at the time, my nephrologist told me that I should really expect to either be on dialysis or have a transplant for the rest of my life. That's the way that you can survive after you've had end-stage renal disease. So it happened very young, and now I'm in my 50s with, you know, my fourth kidney transplant. For the sake of those of us who don't understand such things, <laughs> um, sure. my notion, my quite ignorant notion, mind you, about kidney transplant was that the kidney disease was that the, the disease was in the kidney. So when the kidney got taken out, the disease was gone. But And, and that could be true, of course, if the kidney has cancer or something else. Right, but that's that's right. The nature of your your challenge is that you had a disease that affects the kidneys, and the disease doesn't get taken out of you when the kidney. Am I getting that? 
You're getting that right. And I wish they could take the disease out of me, but it's an autoimmune disease, which means like in a lot of autoimmune diseases, it's something uh, they're not even sure. It's called focal glomerular sclerosis or FSGS. That's the name of this autoimmune kidney disease I have. And it means there's a factor that is in the blood for people like me that attacks the kidney. Mm. And so there's different tricks that they can do to try to minimize that factor. Um, But they have not yet in all these 30 some years that I've had FSGS been able to isolate it and cure it. Mm. In many people, if there's a damage to your kidney or something happens and they transplant it and replace it, then you're good. They're you have to really um, realize, though, that you're going to take medication that can have different side effects. There's always a risk of rejection. There's always things like that. Um, so it's, you know, we all want happy endings. And this is something I've really thought about a lot when I wrote my book is that, you know, it'd be lovely to write this happy ending with a bow and, you know, boom, I'm all good, happily ever after. But, you know, that isn't always real. And, in my case, I'm not going to ever get a transplant and then it's all going to be rosy. I'm always going to manage this uncertainty, but um, that's why it's a little different. And still at 22, being first diagnosed with this and now being in your 50s, you know, that's 30 years of miracle, right? Right. <laughs> Something that wouldn't even have existed 50 years ago, much less hundred years ago. Yeah. You know, I've really, through all the things I've been through, I've learned so much about um, the value of perspective. And yeah, in the 1960s is when dialysis was invented and it was invented and started in Seattle and they had six machines. So there really were panels that would determine who were the lucky six people that would be able to survive on the machines. And those lucky people um, had to be on that machine for about 12 hours at a time. And it was there as panels that would discuss their worth in the community and if they could financially um, shoulder the cost, which was very expensive at the time, because this was before Nixon's administration really had Medicare come along to cover end-stage renal disease. So well, in other words, only wealthy, well-connected and perhaps influential people were the first chosen for those six kidney dialysis machines. (laughs) Absolutely. So perspective really helps me. And I encourage other patients that I talk to, to think about, you and I had talked before about kind of the lucky list. And I've developed in my life kind of a lucky list because things might feel unlucky at times. Well, you, you had two lists if I remember from our previous conversation. Yes, you called one the shitty list. (laughs) The shitty list and the lucky list. And I also call the shitty list, um, what I do with the shitty list is do a damn it dump. So I really encourage people, if you're feeling discouraged or angry or like life's unfair, go ahead and feel those things. Like I'm not the kind of person who says, just ignore it and be happy. Like we have to process a lot of things in our lives. So I'm a big fan of doing a damn it dump and reserving a place in my notebook for when things are just getting me upset and I wish it was going differently than it is. I just dump it all in the notebook, but then I resort to my lucky list. And on the lucky list, I can feel very uplifted by the fact that I do have wonderful people in my life that I love and 
really ultimately that I'm alive. That's a big one that I, I resort to a lot because I know we have this saying about, is your glass half empty or half full? I think that is the wrong question. I think that when we're thinking of half empty or half full, we're disregarding the fact that we have a glass. And to me, the glass is life. And so as long as I am here and able to be with my people, even if I might deal with some, you know, health setbacks or whatever, I can still laugh. I can still pet my dog. I still love my husband. So it really helps me to, to curate my lucky list to keep on going. Well, so let me go back a bit to, because of course I'm fascinated with what what you're talking about. So we got off on all kinds of delightful bunny trails, but I want to get back to the original story of you being a 22 year old, because what, what sticks out in my, in your story to me is first of all, to be so young and to get diagnosed with a kidney disease and all, or all of that, but also that it, there was a feeling of hopelessness at the beginning. You know, one of the things that really struck me in your story when we talked earlier was here you were 22, kind of at the beginning of what you thought was going to be just a blossoming life and plans for love and marriage and family and career and all of those kinds of things. And you're feeling differently about that. Can you tell me about those moments at the very beginning of your journey? Yes. So like you said, I was um, 22. I was a recent college graduate. I got a business degree and a psychology minor. I secured a public relations position living in Seattle, my best friend, and I had a boyfriend and I just felt like, here I come world, you know, I'm ready to launch. And then one day I woke up and my eyes were puffy. My legs felt kind of, uh, I felt swollen in my legs and I was very tired and so I went to a doctor and I assumed, you know, maybe I had some, something normal, like, you like know, you were anemic a, or something or, yeah, or a flu or strep throat or just something. I just didn't know otherwise. I didn't know that I had very little knowledge about medical mishaps, but quickly, you know, he did a urine test and told me that my kidneys were damaged and I needed to have a biopsy. And I was horrified at the word biopsy, um, I immediately thought cancer and kidney damage didn't, I couldn't really wrap my mind around that. But I quickly uh, flew home to Minnesota where my family is. They wanted me to get the biopsy here. I was, so I left the Pacific Northwest to just get this biopsy. And I really left thinking, you know, hey, friends, I'll be back in, you know, probably a little over a week. But the biopsy showed I had this incurable autoimmune kidney disease. So that's when I first heard the word incurable. I first heard the word progressive. And I rapidly had kidney failure within six months. So let, let me pause there for a second. That moment of hearing the words kidney disease, incurable, and then, of course, the next series of words that a 22-year-old doesn't imagine hearing, things like biopsy, things like dialysis, things right. like, you know, those, that avalanche of new and really awful or scary vocabulary came at you. And what was your, where did you go with that? Into depression. I mean, I was really... It, it, it felt like the world, you know how 
the if a sky is gray and you just feel like kind of gray sky coming down on you, like that's what it felt like inside my body and around me. I just felt like, ooh, I've really gone into a gray space here. I, but I always had this feeling like this isn't going to be my life. Somehow I'm going to get out of this. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, well, a lot of thoughts I have about it, but my dad was always a big Dale Carnegie guy and he would always preach Dale Carnegie, how to stop worrying and start living. And it was kind of his Bible. We would always say, you know, what would Dale do? He just was a real funny um, advocate for Dale Carnegie. And so I would just take little nuggets of things that my dad had always said about, about, you know, how to manage the worst case scenario. And so I would just sort of think to myself, well, the worst case scenario is I'm going to have to have a kidney transplant. But I remember my doctor said, in some cases, there can be spontaneous remission. And I just hung on to spontaneous remission. Like I would grab at any little hopeful thing I had just to get through the day. Um, But I was pretty devastated, like, you know, with the little hopeful nuggets, I was I felt like I had been ripped from my rightful place with my friends in Seattle. I just really wanted to get back to my life in Seattle. And I thought that the transplant would do that. Eventually I'd get a transplant. I would, you know, soldier through dialysis and that was hard and very draining. And, but I would always just think, but once I get that kidney, I'm going to go back to my life. Like it would be that sort of happy ending. Um, But that didn't happen. And mm-hmm. when I got my first transplant and I got that call that was so exciting, like, this is it. This is the ticket back to my future. Um, three days after I got the kidney, I had recurrence. So meaning that the new kidney was now diseased yes. as well. They found the autoimmune factor was attacking the new kidney within wow. three days. Wow. So it, that point I had to really adjust to now what, like this was it. This was what was going to return me to my future. What am I going to do now? And I didn't know if I would have the kidney for six days or six months or six years, but um, it was helping a little bit. It was, we knew that this process was happening But my doctor said, we'll manage this with medications and we'll just hope it can last as long as it can. And at that point, I thought I had to really make a decision. And the decision was based on a couple of things. Like we've just talked about, I realized I owe it to this donor family to make the best that I can of my life with this gift. None of us know how long it's going to last, but as long as I have it, I'm going to make memories and I am going to honor the gift that I've been given. And it lasted five years and three months. But in that time, I started dating and I had a boyfriend who became my husband and I started a career um, with a family custom home building business. I started working with clients on their custom homes and doing some of the public relations work and business work that I had gotten my degree for. And, and I started to have a social life again. And so I was making memories and I did, I really 
it, Joseph Campbell was also a very key person for mm-hmm. me in this sort of manage my life transition because I love the quote that he has, that we must be willing to let go of the life we've planned so as to have the life that waits for us. And I just thought I got to let go of the PR job in Seattle and going to live in Seattle and I'm going to have that life. I'm going to have a different life than that, but I can make it a good one. Well, so that comes back to the the question that I began a little while before I interrupted you with other stories. Um, And that is, what compelled you to write this book? It sounds as though you wanted to share this perspective yes. that you gained through this, this perspective, you know, the title incurable optimist, right? Incurable, right. And the subtitle, I love that it's living with illness and chronic hope as opposed to living with chronic illness, right? That, right. That, that's a testimony to your lucky list, right? Yes. That was very important to me. Chronic hope was very important to me in the subtitle because I do think that, you know, hope is a really wonderful thing. When we're hopeless, that's not fun at all. Like hope is always something that I think we should hang on to. And so I believe in chronic hope. I really do. But you had asked me, so getting back to your original question, like why did I write this book? Um, A couple of reasons. Most close to home is actually it was Ellen DeGeneres and Madonna who helped inspire me to write this book through connected with my daughter. And that story is I was just watching um, Ellen was on one day and Madonna was on and Ellen was revisiting with Madonna how Madonna really supported Ellen in sharing her story, which was coming out. And what she really encouraged her to understand is that if she didn't share her story, nobody else could. And she could help a lot of people with their story and, you know, thought she was so brave to come out and help others. And I suddenly realized, thinking of my daughter, Liza, who was young at the time, I want my daughter to know my story. What if I get hit by a bus tomorrow? And she never knows what a miracle she is to actually be here. And the things that I went through and, and, Donors gave me the ability to create her life. And I just thought this has to be something I have on paper. So I'm sure she'll always know it if if I don't tell her everything in time. And mm. so I had a lot of urgency to write it for that reason. But also I have talked to so many people, like with my work with the National Kidney Foundation, I'm a peer's mentor. And I talk to other patients and help them manage uncertainty because I have so much experience and empathy with all my years dealing with this. And um, I really think that some of the things that I'm able to share with them has helped them. And that makes me feel so good to give back in that way. Because when you're someone like me, who's had two deceased donors, um, there's an, and then two living donors, but there's an intersection with deceased donors of life and death, which is really hard to handle, especially when you're 23. It's it's very um, confusing to kind of mesh that the sorrow of somebody else has been paid forward to provide joy to another person. And that is such a complicated intersection emotionally to deal with. Let me linger there for just a moment. This notion that here, when, when I just, I've seen it enough with 
people I care about and even in films and vicariously through other people's stories, that when you're on the list and you're waiting for a kidney, the day that they tell you, oh my gosh, your kidney is here. It's like, that's like, that's the big, that's the circus and the Academy Award and everything, the rocket launches all at once, right? It's joyful. Absolutely. But in the case of a deceased donor, it also means that simultaneously, that is somebody else's most terrible day, right? That's a tragedy in somebody else's life, most likely. Absolutely. And so those two seemingly contradictory things have to coexist in the same space. And the recipient, I can imagine, has some ambivalence there or some... Yes, definitely. Like you, said, you call it, a, there's an intersection of life and death at that moment? Yes. And... It's confusing. It's confusing when you're the recipient um, because, you know, if you're an empathetic feeling person, you can't help but think about the loss that someone has gone through. And that in my first deceased donor case, um, they don't tell you that much about your deceased donors. It's not like you get a lot of information. There's obviously privacy involved, but um, they generally tell you the age and um, you know, if it was a a boy or girl or man or woman and um, where the kidney came from. So in my first case, I learned that a 17-year-old young man died in a car accident in Rochester, Minnesota, and I was 23. And I mean, that was really a very hard thing for me to even process. And I felt I felt a lot of guilt about it. I mean, there's a lot of kind of a guilty feeling that you have, although you know you're not directly related to that tragedy, but it's a hard thing to kind of marry those two thoughts. And thank goodness over the years, I've been so involved with Donate Life and different organizations that I have learned from the families that are donate families that are donating, um, in that case, because I should back up, if you're under 18, a family has to make the decision. Right. If you agree that you want to be a registered donor and you're 18 or over, that's your decision. That's binding. But so I realized that this family had to make this decision for their young, young son. And I have learned through Donate Life that families feel such comfort in the time of their tragedy that they could at least have the life of their loved one live on through somebody else. Or that something positive could come out of something so terrible. Right. But as the recipient, you have to really remind yourself they're not related. Like you didn't cause anything for someone to become a deceased donor. You're just the recipient of their generosity going forward in the face of the tragedy. But it's it's a hard intersection, like I said. I understand. You know, I, I've dealt with that in my in my own existence. I, I married a widower and we have a family and we have a lovely life together. But I only have that because there was a tragedy. Right. I have that because someone passed away and that, you know, some, my husband and my first son uh, lost their wife and their mother. Yeah. And I had to kind of reconcile that, that my, uh, that grief and gratitude had to live side by side. Yes. It wasn't either or, it was both and. I could have sorrow for the loss that happened and be happy for the inheritance that I received. I know that's exactly, that's exactly it. And that's really what life is. I think that 
you know, like I, back to the idea of having happy endings, we don't really ever have happy endings because we don't have endings in our life. We don't live like I just wrote a piece about this that, you know, it's January and a lot of happy new year, happy new year. And, you know, I heard some people say last year was a bad year. This year is going to be a good year. And we don't live in a chunk of time in a year. We don't, I don't think we have bad years and good years. I think that we have, you know, every day and every month and every year, it's filled with beauty and bummers. We've get both of them. And we just should be grateful that we're alive back to having that glass. Um, but yeah, their beauty and bummers are always going to coexist in our lives, just like in your experience. And we can't mingle them together. We have to know they, they do live side by side. Well, that's a beautiful moment to end on. Jennifer Kramer Miller, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project, for sharing your story. Jennifer's book, Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope, is in pre-production as we record this, but it will be available for purchase in August of 2023, but available for pre-purchase before that. We always encourage folks to go to their indie local indie bookstore, get yourself on the list, but of course you can go to those online sellers as well. And I've seen the preview of the of the cover of this book. And I must say it's delightful because for those of you who can't see it and are just listening in your cars, it's, it's picked on the front cover is a lemon, a sliced open half lemon with a straw in it. That kind of make lemonade out of lemons image. That is a wonderful book cover. So you'll be able to recognize it when it's on the shelf. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much for having me. My conversation with Jennifer Kramer Miller went on longer than I usually allow it, but I just couldn't resist her effervescence and her enthusiasm because I know that it's sincere and that it wasn't easily won, that she's been through a lot. And to be able to have the perspective that she has, given all that she's endured and how many, you know, four kidney transplants and years and years of dialysis and all of those things it's kind of miraculous and I, I just didn't want to miss it. So a couple of things really came to my mind. And one is what she called her damn it dump. <laughs> and of course she has a lovely sense of humor, which we didn't address directly, but w which was obvious. Her damn it dump to me was validating, which is that to be an optimist, you don't, doesn't mean you have to be artificially cheerful or that you have to pretend that the bad things don't exist. It's just that you have to find a place for them and to allow yourself, I call it, you know, I let myself bang my high chair a little bit <laughs> sometimes that sometimes you have to have a place to complain or to feel the darkness or to worry or to fret or to be angry and allowing that, but containing it is part of what I think uh, the practice of an optimist is. It's not a Pollyanna, I'm not, I'm just going to pretend that nothing bad is possible. It's no, I see the bad, I'm dealing with that, but there's more than that. And I love the notion of incurable optimism, living with disease, even the subtitle of Jennifer's book. She put me in mind, of course, of 
several of our past guests and many of our past guests who have had challenging times but have found hope in the middle of them, and particularly around end-of-life issues. So I want to draw attention to past guests, including Grace Livingston and Alana McLeod, who both spoke about the organization Reimagine End of Life, and of course, Amy Peel, who came from the organ transplant world and encourages not only donorship, but also the kind of hope and optimism that comes with the medical miracles, really, of transplantation. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project, to our guest today, and to a few of these extra blooms here at the end. I want to thank you for your time and your attention, and hope that you are finding a place for your own damn it list and your own hopeful lists as well your lucky list, as Jennifer calls it, and that that is helping you to bloom.